you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Stocks posting their best August in 30 years. What does that mean for your money now in the months ahead? We debate that with our investment committee. And joining me for the hour today are Joe Terranova, John Nigerian, Shannon Sakosha is the chief investment officer at Boston Private Wealth. Kevin O'Leary is chairman of O'Shares ETFs. Degas Wright back with us today, the chief investment officer of Decatur Capital Management. Good to have everybody with us today. Let's check stocks, uh, which hit another record high earlier today. NASDAQ still positive. The other majors, though, are in the red. Kevin, they said August was supposed to be historically bad. They say September is supposed to be historically not great either. But if August was so good, should we expect anything to change as we turn the page in the calendar? No, I don't think so. You would think by now we would be taking into account the volatility an election brings and basically, without you know, having any disrespect for either candidate, nobody cares because the, the, you're, you're on side with the Fed, Judge. The Fed is backstopping everything. The Fed is telling you, at least telling me, don't buy government bonds. You'll make nothing. In fact, you'll lose a lot of money if inflation hits. Probably get another trillion to two trillion sometime when both sides agree. M2, money supply, for those of you who remember your economics in high school, up 25%. Where does that money go? Where does my money go? Where does everybody on this panel's money go? Into equities where I can get some pricing power against inflation, because I think it is coming, into companies that have solid balance sheets that are distributing their capital. And that's not going to change now or September. And maybe, maybe if we're lucky, a therapeutic or a vaccine somewhere in the next three to four or five months, which will prove out that it was worth, it was worth waiting in the weeds in equities until this pandemic is put to the side and we wait for COVID-20. That's right. Degas, I mean, Kevin's right, isn't he? Right? The, the greatest yeah. catalyst that we've had for stocks uh, up to this point has been the Fed, the Fed, and the Fed. So we turn the page, we get into September, and even people like Ed Yardeni, who is a frequent guest on this program, says in a new note, I had I'm quoting here, I had hoped that the market would consolidate its gains since March 23rd, giving earnings a chance to rebound. However, Fed officials continue to drive up stock prices by committing to keep interest rates close to zero for a very long time. Consequently, they are fueling the melt up in stock prices. Degas, the Fed's not going anywhere. So why should the stock market stop going up? Yes, Scott, I agree. And uh, Kevin, to your point, we also have to think about the fiscal policy. Um, the uh, recovery pumped in over one trillion dollars into the markets. Uh, into companies buying ETF, uh, bond ETFs. So this is propping up the the market. And what we're seeing now is the liquidity of the market has been uh, induced. And so that's what we're seeing. So this is not a typical market. We would not expect this in a typical framework, but 
with that liquidity added to the market, this is what we're getting. Joe, I see you're not adding any equity exposure here at all. Um, do you not believe in the in the, the narrative that we're just trying to build here on the show today? Because if you take the Fed, you take the tech surge, which seems to be ongoing here. The belief, as Kevin said, that you're going to have therapeutics or a vaccine. And then as the Wall Street Journal points out today, you have mom and pop falling in love with stocks again. Yeah, it's 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 a very complicated position to be in, Scott. Um, adding equity exposure here coming into the fall. I think is a, a challenging predicament to place yourself in. Understand that I am positioned extensively long. We are now experiencing the fifth consecutive positive month for equities. To Kevin's point earlier, what is also experiencing five consecutive months higher is the price of silver. So I think as you look forward into the fall here, I do think you're going to experience a modest correction at some point for equities. I said last week on the show, though, that correction will be very modest. You go down 10% and you're nowhere near the 3,000 level. So we didn't see 2,000 at any point after 2016. I don't think you see 2,500 for the S&P as we move forward over the next three years. I think the Federal Reserve uh, put that is underneath the market is supportive for equities. But I think it is uh, warranted to give consideration to a potential of a modest correction. And I think that's the... uh, let me ask you this. Why mm-hmm. is the why is the move in silver a sign to you that you could get a correction in stocks? Because I think it's indicative of an uncomfortableness with the potential inflation outlook again that Kevin talked about at the beginning of the show. Both gold and silver, uh, a lot of alternative assets have been rallying alongside of the Nasdaq moving higher and the hyper growth stocks moving higher. So I think that's indicating to us uh, that there is budding volatility, Scott, underneath the market. And I think that's the first place I would look if you're looking right now to protect portfolios from a risk management standpoint. Look at the cheapness of volatility. I would be buying volatility and I have. I think that's the right trade to protect the portfolio. Shannon, what's happening in the month ahead? Do we just continue uh, this run that we've been on or do we have, as Joe says, this correction looming? I think there's going to be discomfort with some of the economic data that's going to come out over the next couple of weeks, Scott. We've already seen consumer confidence decay. Uh, We're going to see deterioration as, you know, the July 31st um, expanded unemployment benefits, those went away. Um, And we're going to see that in the data that comes out from a consumer spending perspective in August. The consumer needs to be rallying this economy forward. And so if you think about why you're investing in some of these cyclicals, and we've talked about this, you know, give and take on the value rotation, but at this juncture, unless you see that continued consumer spend and that trajectory, then, you know, there's gonna, we're going to lose some steam in equities. And, I, and we've been cautioning our clients against this over the last couple of months, anticipating that September could be a bit rocky. And we're coming into election season as well. It's, it's this nexus of, of uh, events that are going to create some discomfort for yeah, investors. The, you know, Shan, the only pushback is that the stock market is voting r- repeatedly that none of that matters, that nothing, in fact, matters except for the Fed. 
it doesn't in the long term. To Joe's point, I mean, I'm not calling for a 20% correction here. I think in the long term, the Fed remaining, you know, I think this policy announcement they made last week was it was not surprising to anybody who's listened to any of the comments being telegraphed by Powell over the past six to nine months as it relates to interest rate targeting. So I, I think you're right. Longer term, the Fed remains, uh, you know, at our backs. But in the near term, you know, they're certainly going to create an opportunity for a few things to be pulled back, some profit taking. Um, but I, and I do think it I do think this economic data that's going to come out is going to matter to the market. What about, John, this run in tech? Right. Uh, amid all of the conversation, we've had it on this program for for weeks and weeks and weeks about this alleged rotation into cyclical and value stocks at the expense of tech. And it hasn't lasted all that long. You look at the gains in August alone of what we said was the best August uh, for stocks in 30 years. Apple up 20 percent this month. And it's not the only one that's had a great run. Facebook's up 16 and a half. Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, uh, Amazon, excuse me, all up nearly 10 percent. Is anything going to change in terms of where you want to be putting your money in the month or two ahead? Uh, If you stretch it out to two months, maybe, Scott. But for the short term, no, nothing's changed. Um, You know, the I was just looking uh, on the OCC's website as well as our heat seeker at the volumes of trade today. And not surprising, of course, because of the four for one and five for one splits that we've seen. The volumes are exploding right now. 400 percent of a full day's volume. But of course, you've got four times as many shares. Um, So that's not particularly uh, strange, but it keeps those stocks top of mind, Scott. Think how much money people spend to get that top of mind for any product, in particular a stock. It's not so easy. Um, And yet, uh, these stocks are continuing to perform, will continue to perform. People are loath to take those profits and pour them into uh, those so-called value rather than growth stocks, Scott. That could change over the two-month period, but in the short term, I don't think it does. And I'll let us also focus on the fact that um, a lot of these uh, secondary shutdowns um, in Florida, in Texas, in Arizona have now reopened. Um, They might not be as wide open as they were, Scott, but we're likely to see spending data from these areas in particular based on our alternative data we're seeing people moving around, both walking and driving. In New York, of course, it's really just driving. And maybe that's to the shore, Scott. Maybe that's out to the Hamptons. But they're not walking. They're not walking around the city at all. And that's what it takes to get a lot of that uh, volume of trade up in those businesses in New York. But that is happening in Florida, in Arizona, in Texas, to a certain extent, California, any of that FCAT sort of stuff. So I'm looking for that slowdown that dropped in the beginning of June into July to start hockey sticking back up again. And if that does, I think that's another reason to stay in some of these names as schools come back online, as Steve Leisman was saying, an awful lot of colleges back as well. And I think that also drives demand for a whole host of uh, tech products. Well, Kev, I mean, that, that theoretically would also drive demand for cyclical stocks. I mean, if, if you're going to get a bounce back like John is suggesting you might, you get a rise in interest rates a bit that, that stimulate a, a bank trade, don't you? That, that's one of the calls today uh, from um, Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley. I, I know I'm amid a million calls on that, Kevin, but 
They are coming out of the woodwork saying that financials are a place you want to be. You got the 10-year at 70-some-odd basis points today, as I noticed, which is about 10 basis points higher than um, you know, before I went on vacation. But what now? No, I don't think so. Not for me. Uh, you know, I've been out of the cyclicals or, or the, uh, the banks and the money center banks and the regional banks for one specific reason. I've continued to reduce my position. I don't agree on this call at all. They have not marked to market all the real estate they own on the regional banks. They own all those strip malls that are going to zero. We don't know what the cap rates are going to be on AAA office towers in New York and Boston, also bank assets. Not yet. I don't think... You haven't missed a thing staying out of those. And every week we get another call now by the banks. It's where money goes to die. It's utter misery with interest rates staying at zero. That is not a place to put capital. And I suffer with it, Scott. I suffer with it. It used to be an 18% weighting in my mandates. I'm trying to get it down to zero to avoid the misery and pain that those banks are going to have to go through. And they're the best managed they've ever been. I'm not saying the management isn't great. But you have to admit that you can't get 80 people in an elevator anymore anytime soon, maybe in a couple of years or whatever. And 15% of the staff on all of my operating companies, in some cases 20, do not want to go back to work. They want me to pay for higher speed internet, give them new equipment. They're in accounting, logistics, compliance. They've tasted what it's like to work at home. They like it and they're not going back. So I'm cutting back on my office space by at least 15%. I may save 4%. Who owns this misery? The banks. They own it. Avoid with extreme prejudice, in my opinion. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know if our, our panel agrees with you on that. John, right? Kevin says stay away altogether from financials. I, I don't think you've stayed away altogether. And it certainly doesn't sound like his thesis m meshes with your view on where we're going. Well, um, in the case of Bank Scott, I've, I've got uh, exposure to the financial sector through, uh, I guess, PayPal with their Venmo um, and Square with their Cash App. I've got a little bit of exposure in J.P. Morgan and Key Bank, but I don't have much. Um, and when, when you look at my portfolio of maybe 45 stocks, uh, those four, and in particular two of those at least, are mainly just transaction vehicles. Um, so I'm, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with Kevin about that. I think it's going to be hard for these banks, uh, not impossible, but hard for them to post up numbers that get them anywhere near uh, where they were back in January, Scott. Right. So, but I wouldn't hard, hardcore avoid them. I, I would just basically look for entries on significant sell-offs or on downgrades that come from some of those observations Kevin just made. Degas, what about the banks? Yeah, so what we did is that we exited the regional banks uh, back in January uh, because we saw what was happening with the financials. We continue to reduce our financial exposure and we've increased our tech exposure uh, because what we're seeing is that that business model for those tech companies that's what's driving them is going to continue in the short term. So that's been our move. And so I, I guess I'm agreeing with Kevin and John that financials are not the place you want to be right now in this market. Wow. Shen, you want to take the other side? If you... I do, actually, <laughs> for once. Um, I, I, I do want to take the other side. I think if you're looking at inflation expectations rising and growth expectations rising, and you get an incremental steepening of the yield curve, there is absolutely going to be a rush back into financials and particularly into banks. I know that um, 
you know, I've talked about, you know, non-bank financials over the last couple of years as, as far as being a good place to be. If we're if we really see a, a move towards yield curve steepening, and we should, based on what the Fed last, said last week, that they're going to let inflation run hot, and the fact that we're all talking about this consumer spending rebirth and improved economic growth, I think if you believe that economic growth is going to improve into 2021 and you're not buying financials, um, I, I think that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me from a positioning standpoint. So I think if, you're, if you believe that, then you should see yield curve steepening, and that creates an opportunity to own financials. It doesn't have to be much, Scott. It just has to be incremental and show that there is something there for banks to be able to lend off of. So, Joe, that that sort of meshes with Mike Wilson's thesis, who says the Fed chief delivered on his average inflation targeting, but failed to give any indication that the yield curve control would accompany that. That combination suggests that back end rates can move higher and maybe a lot if the CARES 2 package can ultimately pass in Congress, they can, you know, get out of their own way in, in, in D.C. and do something. We believe financials remain the best way to play it. That sounds like Shannon's talking the same so, game. Yeah, and that would be a benefit to the financials. And uh, full disclosure, I'm long J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. So I have money center bank exposure. But the reasoning behind uh, my longs there has nothing really to do with the expectation that the yield curve is going to steepen. It has to do with the significant uptick in the positive environment as it relates to trading activity. So that's why I'm really there. Uh, there would be a benefit if we saw that. But on the other side of that, Scott, you have the potential for significant regulatory risk for the financial sector on the other side of the election. And I'm not necessarily sure we've priced that in just yet. I mean, I'm surprised given that you would you would own any of of, of the banks, right? I mean, if rates aren't going to meaning, meaningfully rise from here, if you've got regulatory risk on the other side of the election, I mean, positive trading mm -hmm. volume, Joe, is not enough to lift these bank stocks from, from here in a market way, is it? I disagree with that, and the performance actually shows it from where the entry was uh, just three or four months ago. Uh, it has been the strong well, trading uh, that has been. I mean, you want to look at any stock where it was four months ago versus where it is today, Joe? I mean, I'm talking about oh, there, for, for, from here forward. There are a lot of. Sorry, Scott, I'm talking over you. Um, there, are, there are a lot of stocks that are in the same place or lower than they were just four months ago. So the Morgan Stanley, the Goldman Sachs positions that I have taken within the last four months, I've taken those positions on the expectation and I've communicated that on the show that you would have strong revenue from trading. And you've gotten that, and it's the reason why those stocks have moved higher. Not anything to do uh, with the yield curve steepening. So that's why I have that exposure. Um, and and to, to answer your question, why even have any exposure, you know that I'm going to say because I think diversification is very important in a portfolio. And you do have to touch all of the sectors and mine for quality opportunities. Well, Ke Kevin, I'll give you the last word. You started this with don't touch these things. That, that's where money goes to die. What about Joe's argument that you should be invested in the banks, at least to some extent? Well, I think that's what makes a market. You know, Joe and I agree on a lot of things, but I have never agreed on his bank calls, and I won't. Um, I just don't think the environment is good for them. And every other sector looks more attractive because you can talk about economic recovery owning actual companies that are going to participate and have pricing power that don't have a mark-to-market loan problem on their books in the case of regionals or in the case of money center banks have put out billions of dollars into real estate that worked for 30 years as rates went down. 
But you have to admit we don't know what the mark to market is. You know, Judge, you have lots of people that come on and talk about the woe and misery of, of lease-ups in, in residential being fantastic versus what's going on in office and commercial. Office and commercial is sitting on the balance sheets of banks. I can give you a dozen reasons why you don't want to own them. Sometimes it's better to do nothing. Hey, they teach you that in business school. Do nothing. In the case <laughs> of banks, avoid do nothing. All right. Um Joe is doing something with some of his positions, and I do want to get to what all of you are, uh, in fact, the, the moves that you're making. Joe, you sold Best Buy. There are some other moves, too. But I did, Scott. Start with Best Buy. Tell me why you sold it. I, I just feel as though uh, the good news has been priced in, the work-from-home environment. Uh, how many new computers are we going to buy? How many more, uh, more equipment as it relates to the environment of actually sitting at home and working? Um, so I thought the response to the quarter was poor in terms of performance. Um, I had talked on the show about being concerned going into the quarter that the expectation was very high, and obviously it was. I'll ring the register and I'll take my profit. CNX Resources. Did you sell that CNX, too? CNX EQT. I did, Scott. CNX and EQT, those were natural gas plays. I tried to get a little bit of a revival out of energy. It worked for a little bit. Listen, I didn't lose money on the trade, but I am disappointed uh, given the weather activity in the Gulf that we did not see uh, a little bit more of a stronger performance from those natural gas names. Um, and I took the, the capital that was raised from those three names that I just told you I sold, and I went back into Old Dominion Freightline. I'm very bullish on the transports right now. That is a transport. That's a mid-cap transport. Not afraid to buy high and sell higher, as you know. No, and definitely not. And then lastly, not. I got exposure. Nope. And I got exposure to the VXX. And that's the VIX that I will tell all of the viewers I strongly believe going into the fall that adding, uh, adding volatility into the portfolio from the long positioning is the right move to make from a risk management standpoint. So, look, I, I know that you're not talking about, you know, expecting a a large correction or whatever word you use to describe what you are. I can't remember. But you did say 10, 10% pullback. You, you did use 10%. It sounds like, I mean, you know, you got the umbrella out. I mean, you know, no new positions, okay? No new equity positions. Mm -hmm. You sold Best Buy, right, which is one of, the, one of the better performing retailers, and you added the VIX. That tells me that you're protecting your portfolio at this point rather than trying to be opportunistic to the plus side. Yeah, and I, and I think maybe if, if I hadn't done uh, some of the trades that I did in the prior months that, that put me in a good position, maybe I'd be looking at this differently and I'd be like others, which is chasing that performance. And I think there's a lot of people right now as we push into the fall that are out there changing the performance. And, you know, I brought up silver before. And again, I just want to emphasize that point. People try and find risk management in alternative assets, but ultimately, when a correction, and whether it's a modest correction of 3 to 5%, or maybe a little stronger one closer to 8 to 10%, when it ultimately comes, the place that the ATM um, is, is presented is in the equities market themselves. And I think there is some vulnerability here as we move into the fall for a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction to kind of shake the tree out, and then restart the positive momentum on the other side of that. Yeah, you're not alone in thinking that, obviously, with the election looming. Degas, before I let you run, uh, tell me about trimming S&P Global, if you could, please. Yeah, so S&P Global, we actually 
great stock that ran. And so we just pulled back a little bit. We took some of the profits off the table. Great story. It is actually doing really well in this trading market. It sells data to traders' investment. And so it's doing a really good job also in its ways building its brand through its uh, focus on STEM education for in its communities. So we really like uh, S&P Global. We just took some profit off the table. Gotcha. It's been good uh, having you on the program again. We'll see you soon. Thank you much. All right, Digus, you'll be well. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now. She has a sector check on this last trading day of a great month for stocks. Hey, Rahel. Yes, it has been. Hi, Scott. Welcome back. So perhaps no surprise, but taking the top spot, heck, it has reclaimed its dominance in August, up 12%. And on the flip side, utilities slipped past energy to become the worst performer, down 3%. So, yes, the S&P did notch a new record high in August, as did six of the sectors, although the other five do remain a good distance from topping their 52-week highs. Now, the furthest from new highs, still energy, out a whopping 42% from its recent highs. Industrials, however, had a strong performance in August, up 9%. And that's helped the sector come within about 10% of new high. The big drivers in that sector this month might sound a little familiar. We see names like FedEx, UPS, and the airlines. And switching gears, tech, of course, largely driven by those mega caps like Apple and Microsoft. But it's also really interesting, Scott, to take a look at what's unfolding in fintech. Visa and MasterCard are both up more than 10% in August, sending them both to new all-time highs for the first time since before the pandemic. And notably, their gains this month outpaced their newer rivals like PayPal. That's a reversal of the trend we've seen for most of the year, where really those younger payment service companies have dominated. And Scott, off the heels of that spirited conversation a few moments ago, it is really interesting to see all of these big moves in the non-financials payment space, especially with just how weak the overall financial sector has been this year. Give me the laggards again, Rahel, if you could. I want to tee it up for a conversation. That's why I asked again. It was, it was industrials. I just couldn't write that fast. Industrials, uh, real estate, utilities. Utilities, energy, the worst performer. Right. Utilities was down 3%. Uh, energy is, of course, usually one of the worst performers. So in that context, Kevin, of those four losers, if you will, um, in, in the month in terms of sectors, which one's most likely to have a good September, do you think? Of the losers? None yeah. of them. The trend continues the same. I think you, you have to say, to me, you know, I've been taking money out of utilities, taking money out of real estate, taking money out of regional and money center banks for a reason. And I think the other sectors that look interesting to me, and I know there's getting concentration, Judge. Everybody talks about it every day. But technology is driving America 2.0. It's, it's, it's allowing us to run an economy on a digitized basis, so I have to stay there. Healthcare really intrigues me because I know we're going to be repatriating the supply chain and all the generics will be manufactured in Puerto Rico, Mexico, Canada, U.S. I got to be there. Those are interesting sectors. Anything to do with the consumer has been a good bet because they did not decline as quickly as everybody thought. And all of this money falling out of helicopters is one way or another getting to them. So for me, it's the consumer space, the healthcare space, the tech space, which I'm overweighting, and I don't see it changing. And do I want to invest in banks or utilities or real estate? Nah, that looks really nasty next year. No, thank you. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. We'll come back. We have an exclusive interview with Mark Lazary. He is the chairman and CEO of Avenue Capital, the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. It's his first interview since that team's uh, walkout over the weekend sparked a, a movement all across the sports landscape. You do not want to miss that. We're back right after this.
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. We are back, and let's get to Sue Herrera, who has the headlines for us. Hi, Sue. I do indeed. Thank you, Scott. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Confirmed COVID-19 cases in the U.S. have now topped 6 million. That's just under a quarter of all cases worldwide. The U.S. added a million new cases in just three weeks. You can go to CNBC.com to check out the latest on U.S. hotspots. On the Mediterranean Sea, the migrant rescue ship financed by the artist Banksy has needed help itself. It had to offload people onto other boats after taking on so many migrants it could no longer move. Banksy is criticizing European authorities for taking six hours to respond to the ship's distress call. And this will make you smile. In Berlin, a pair of pandas are celebrating their first birthdays with a frozen cake. It's made of beetroot and sweet potato. Mmm. They're already eating pretty well. The pandas weighed seven ounces at birth. They now tip the scales at more than 61 pounds. All right, everybody go aw. You're up to date, Scott. That's the news update. Yeah, it's just one of those things you do when you see pandas, right, Sam? Absolutely. And I'm trying to, you know, bring a little happiness into the news cycle, which is very dark. Yes, we appreciate that as always. Sue Herrera, thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, the NBA playoffs resumed over the weekend following the walkout by league players to protest the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The Milwaukee Bucks started the action by refusing to take the floor for their playoff game against the Orlando Magic, a move that sparked similar action across the entire sports world. Mark Lazary is the owner of the Bucks, joins us now exclusively. It's his first interview on the subject. Mark, it's good to see you again. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. Can you give me and give our viewers an idea of of how all of this went down last week behind the scenes? Yeah, I think think what ended up happening is George Hill um, felt that he shouldn't play mainly because, you know, what happened was in our state. Um, And I think then the rest of the players followed suit. Um, and that's really how it all came about. And then afterwards, um, we set up a call with the Wisconsin uh, Attorney General and the Lieutenant Governor for the players to speak about what they were thinking and how to bring about change. Yeah. When did you first find out that there were thoughts among your team not to take the floor that day? Um, I think I found out probably just a few minutes before everybody else did. Um, I think the players met and they talked in the locker room and, you know, the game was supposed to start. And I think I got a call about a minute or two before um, other people found out. So found out pretty much the same time as everybody else did. Yeah. And, and what were your thoughts when you when you did hear that? Um, I was surprised. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I was supportive of what the players were doing. Um, I felt it's, you know, it's their right. Um, and they have a voice, and they should be able to utilize that voice. Do you, do you think that, that all of the other owners in the league, I'm, I'm sure you have some perspective on this. I don't know if there was a league-wide owner's call that you may have been on or from the owners that you spoke to individually. Um, owners come from all stripes, as, as we know, politically and yep. otherwise. Um, was everybody supportive 
of the move, not only from, from the Bucks, but, but league-wide? Everybody I spoke to was supportive. I think the rest of the owners were very supportive. I think at the end of the day, to be honest with you, I think Adam did a phenomenal job in, you know, dealing with what was going on and talking to the players and talking to the owners. So I think there was, uh, I think everybody was in agreement. I'm wondering how, how you think about, do you feel as though any part of, of the walkout or the boycott and I don't even know what the right word, frankly, is to use. Um, protest doesn't necessarily seem to be be the right word. But do, do you think that any of that was directed at the owners themselves for for not uh, maybe taking some of the concerns of the players seriously uh, enough? I don't think so. I, I, I think it, how it started was really um, with a few players and then the team deciding that because everything happened in Wisconsin, um, that they felt an obligation um, to be able to do something and say something. I I don't think it had anything to do with the owners. And I think all the discussion with the players afterwards um, was one of partnership and one of working together. And I think that's what what ultimately ended up happening um, and why the game started right back after about two or three days. Can you shed any light on, on how close in your mind the season was to being completely over? Um, yeah, I mean, look, from where I was, I, I don't think it, I, I think there was absolutely a risk. Um, but I don't know what that risk was, how large it was. Um, you know, I wasn't in the meetings with the players. So I think it was ultimately their decision as to whether they were going to play or not. Um, you know, at least from what I've heard, I think you had, um, you know, a large group of players who wanted to continue, um, but they wanted to feel that, you know, that they could still be heard. And I think that's actually what's been happening. I think, um, you know, by playing, they have a platform and people will be paying attention. I think by not playing, um, it becomes a little bit more difficult. You shed any, any light on the role that Michael Jordan was said to play as a liaison, if you will between the, the players and the owners? Yeah, I think Michael Jordan, just because of who he is, um, he has a tremendous amount of respect um, with the players and with the owners. And I think he's probably uniquely qualified um, out of everybody to be able to speak to players um, because he was one and to be able to speak to the owners. So I, I think Michael had great advice for all of us, which was really to listen and um, to pay attention to what people were saying. Um, I, I think Michael was instrumental in getting a lot of this done. Is that right? He, he encouraged the players to use the platform that they, they had to continue to play, but also for the owners to be understanding about what the player's message was, was trying to be? I think so. I think at the end of the day, Michael um, was able to speak to everyone, and everybody was able to listen to Michael because of who he is. I, I want to ask you about some of the reaction, which has been – um, you know, somewhat widespread. Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, senior advisor to, to the president, was on CNBC uh, last Thursday morning. I want you to listen to what his reaction was when asked um, by, I believe it was Andrew, uh, about that. And let's hear your reaction on the other side of that. Sure. I think that the NBA players are very fortunate that they have the financial position where they're able to take a night off from work without uh, having to 
to have uh, the consequences to themselves financially. So they have that luxury, which is great. Uh, look, I think with the NBA, there's a lot of uh, activism, and I think that uh, they've put a lot of slogans out. But I think that what we need to do is turn that from slogans uh, and, uh, and, and signals to actual action that's going to solve the problem. What's your response to that, Mark? Um, but Jared, it's great that Jared has an opinion, and I think that's nice. But it's actually easily solved. If, you know, Jared's in a position of power um, where he could solve a lot of these issues. Um, so I think ultimately, if he wants those issues solved, um, he should he should do it. Um, he knows what the issues are, so um, I think it can be solved if him and the president want to. But the president himself said, and I'm, I'm quoting here. Um, I think what they're doing to the NBA in particular is going to destroy basketball. Um, w- what's your reaction to that? Um, I would disagree with that. I don't think it will at all. I think at the end of the day, um, people love watching basketball. People are excited that the playoffs are back. Um, and people understand that people have an opinion and that they want to be heard. Do, do you worry at all that you could lose some fans league-wide as a result of, of some of these actions? I think you could lose some fans. I think you'll gain some fans. Um, I think we'll see what ends up happening. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, um, we should all respect if somebody has something to say. Uh, I'm also wondering, sort of as, as you know, the position you hold with, within the league and your role now in, in professional sports, how we in society see the role of the professional athlete um, changing Right. The, the calls for athletes are not going to listen to those calls anymore that say stay in your lane, um, shut up and dribble, if you will, um, because they view their lanes as now a two lane road at minimum where, yes, they may be basketball players in one light, but they have these powerful platforms and they're thoughtful people beyond be, being able to, to, to run the right and execute the right play on the court that they want their voices to be heard because they feel like they have an opportunity, perhaps like never before, to execute change? Um, look, I, I think they have every right. I mean, um, I think LeBron James has 70 million Twitter follow- or Instagram followers. Um, I have 400. Um, I think people want to listen to LeBron James. I mean, at the end of the day, they're going to listen to players um, they're going to want to see what they're doing, and I think players want to voice their opinions. And by the way, they have every right to. They're, um, you know, at work, people voice their opinions to me. I mean, everybody who I work with has an opinion. I think at the end of the day, it's a bit ludicrous to sort of say to people, look, I only want you doing one thing and one thing only. Um, so I respect everybody's right to be able to say and think what they want to do. But we know, you know, that there's a, there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, and perhaps some still th- feel this way in the ownership ranks um, that the players have a role to play um, and that maybe all owners aren't comfortable with their players speaking out in the manner in which they are. Do you feel like that has changed now and that it's changed for good? It has changed. I, I think society is changing. I think there's, there's been a lot of changes that have been going on. So um, I think that's just going to become the new normal. Yeah, we know that, and lastly, and before I let you go, I mean, we know that many arenas are now going to be used as polling places. That was, you know, one of the central ideas that the players um, had, and the leagues are obviously, and the owners are, are, are certainly listening. Yours will as well. Yeah, I do believe you own the, the arena in Milwaukee, so will it be a polling place? Yes, we, um, we do own it. Um, we had to get approvals 
to end up having that happen. And my understanding is that that happened over the last 24, 48 hours. So um, happy to say that Pfizer Forum now will be a polling station. Well, it's good to see the game back. Uh, Definitely good to see the game back. Your guys look in pretty good position. We'll see what happens. I appreciate you coming back and talking to us about this very important issue, Mark. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. That's Mark Glaser. You as well. All right, coming up, Buffett's Berkshire betting big time on Japan. We're going to trade it through ETF straight ahead. First, though, I'll give you a look at the S&P sectors. Take a look right now. It's almost a split decision. S&P's negative by a couple. What a great month it's been in August, the best in 30 years. By the way, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The half is back after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, we're back. Let's get to Bob Pisani now with our ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. Hello, Scott. Uh, Warren Buffett said that his company has acquired a slightly more than 5% stake in each of the five leading Japanese trading companies. They import everything from energy and metals to food and textiles into resource-scarce Japan. Let's talk about this with Todd Rosenthal, Todd Rosenbluth, excuse me, head of ETF and Mutual Fund Research. And, of course, we're talking with Jay Jacobs, Senior Vice President at Global X. Uh, Todd, let me start with you. You're at CFRA. You know a lot about this. The largest Japan ETF, that's EWJ, has significant exposure to all five of these companies that Buffett is investing in. But outflows have been happening for a while in that ETF. Will Buffett's investment spark more interest in Japan from the United States investors? We think it likely will. You know, it's a nice tell that the Japanese market has been undervalued. EWJ, as you mentioned, has been seeing outflows about $3 billion, according to CFRA, in the past year. We've also seen DXJ, the Wisdom Tree Currency Hedge ETF, with a billion dollars of outflows. Some of this money collectively is going into the beta builders, ETF BBJP, uh, which is a cheaper version of those two products. But we do think that there's an undervalued opportunity in some of these Japanese ETFs. And as you mentioned, you get the benefits of diversification. Yeah. And Jay, you have got a very interesting ETF, a thematic ETF that's doing terrific this year, the Robotics and Artificial Intelligence ETF. That's B-O-T-C, B-O-T-Z, excuse me. 42% of that are Japanese stocks. I don't think people understand Japan remains a major innovator in robotics and technical research. I think that's exactly right. A lot of people look at Japan and think of this, you know, kind of large but stagnant economy that hasn't done a lot in the last 10 or 20 years. And that's actually very far from the truth. There are pockets of opportunity within Japan where they have been very much at the cutting edge. Robotics and AI is one of them. I mean, these are leading companies in developing robots that are building automobiles, that are that are uh, building cell phones. Uh, that are manufacturing semiconductors, that are building the robots that are going to be, you know, delivering towels at our hotels soon. So they are at the forefront of one of the most powerful themes that we see in the market today. 
Okay, Todd and Jay, thanks very much. Coming up, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, ETF Edge. We're going to be discussing thematic ETFs like robotics, huge successes this year, as well as problems ahead for ESG. It's not so smooth sailing this year. A little bit of pushback on that major ETF front. That's etfedge.cnbc.com, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Scott, back to you. We will be there, Bob. Thank you very much, Bob Pisani. Coming up, John is following unusual action in the options market. The unusual activity is coming up with his trades. First, though, let's show you the Dow 30 heat map. Six are in the green, rest in the red on a down day on this final trading day in August. We're back after this. Shares of Tractor Supply have rallied roughly 57% year-to-date. Now bullish options traders are seeing more gains ahead and this week at that. Doc, stocks modestly higher today, year-to-date. Great year, as we said. What do you see now? Well, Scott, uh, Tennessee-based uh, Tractor Supply, TSCO, you're right. Seeing some strong activity in these weekly calls that expire this coming Friday, going into, of course, Labor Day holiday. Uh, they're buying the 155, Scott, with the stock at about 149. They bought those aggressively in the morning, bought about 6,000 of those, paid about 50 cents, two different batches. I followed them in, Scott. I also bought the 150 strike and sold some higher strikes against it. So that's my first trade. Second one, ACM. This is an infrastructure play, a little bit longer time frame, December. So in other words, Christmas 45s, Scott, that's the strike price they're buying here. They were paying about $1.75 for those. Uh, they traded over 10000 That's a million share equivalent. So I had to follow those as well. And that's a trade that I'll probably be in for several months. All right. Good stuff. Appreciate that, Doc. Thank you. More trades ahead on the half. And as we go to break, a check on some of the stocks hitting all-time highs today. Amazon, Chipotle, and NVIDIA. We're back in two minutes. Miss the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast. Market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. Hey, it's time now for our futures outlook. Take a look at copper futures ticking higher today. And on pace to close out the month up around 6% as global reopening has investors bullish on that. For more, let's bring in Scott Nations of Nations Indexes. Scott, good to see you again. What's the trade? Where is this heading? Uh, it's going to continue higher. We know that it's uh, at its highest level. Copper's at its highest level in about 26 months. It's back about $3 a pound. Why? Well, we knew that consumption in China was through the roof. We didn't quite know how much uh, production out of Chile would be impacted, and now both of those are driving it again higher, above $3 a pound. But Scott, the same things that are driving the parabolic move in lumber are driving copper, and so the trend is higher, and I want to be long, but I don't want to buy the top. Uh, I would be a buyer. In fact, I have an order in to pay $3 a pound for the December contract. My target to the upside would be $3.30. That was the double top in 2018, last time we were at this level. Uh, my stop, we're always going to trade these with a stop, $2.85. We're going to watch this really closely, though, Scott, because copper is a really big contract. And so at those prices, we are risking $3,750 to make $7,500. Got it. Good stuff. We'll talk to you soon, Scott Nations. Thank you. Take a quick break. Thanks. Final trades are next.
It is time now for final trades. Mr. Wonderful, you're up first. What do you got for me? CrowdStrike, I think the focus on the election will make Internet security paramount. Good to hold for the next two, even three quarters. Not afraid to be a contrarian, Shannon Sakosha. How about you? Cisco, the food Cisco. Um, I'm not as positive as John is on restaurant reopenings, but if you want to play the restaurant trade in a more diversified way, this is a great opportunity to do that. All right. Speaking of the good doctor, John Najarian, what do you got? AMD, Scott. This one is exploding. The volume's through the roof, and it's not because of a stock split. I see huge upside activity in the calls. I bought those during the show. Quickly, Joe, what do you have for me today? I've got the NASDAQ, Scott. I think this is a stock that's going to go above 150. It's at 134 now. All right. Good to see everybody. Thanks for watching. The Exchange starts now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.